Welcome to Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. I am thrilled to have a very special guest on the show today. Mr. Valson Marmillion is here with me remotely from Gainesville, Florida. He was named 2022 Louisiana legend. Uh, Louisiana legends are individuals who have distinguished themselves in their fields. Marmillion is recognized as one of the top campaign strategists in the U.S. He founded Marmillion and Company Strategic Communications in 1989. He served as Managing Director of America's Wetland Foundation, and he has served as Executive Producer for numerous programs, including the Discovery Channel and the Learning Channel. He has worked on too many political campaigns for me to mention here, (laughs) but I'll I'll highlight a few. He worked on the first AIDS campaign in the U.S. He also worked on President Jimmy Carter's campaign. He was chief of staff for um, U.S. Senator John Bro when Bro was a congressman from Louisiana, and then he helped run Bro's successful U.S. Senate campaign, and I will let Mr. Marmillion speak to his teaching experiences as that will be a focus today. Welcome to the show and happy birthday. Thank you. You can tell how old I am by some of the things I've done, right? <laughs> but you started them all when you were five. <laughs> exactly. I feel, no, I earned every tread on these tires. Trust me. <laughs> so how's it going? Well, things are good. Um, things are unfortunately not wonderful in Florida or uh, in other parts of the country it's it seems like the southeast conference is having this entire political <laughs> upheaval they're doing days. well with football well they're doing well with football and you know when they take control of the, the legislatures and the governor's offices it seems like uh it seems like they're doing okay there too but but the impact of when you have sort of a, a monochronistic uh surge and you only have one voice heard is not good for democracy. And, and we're going to get into that. I just want to say that I appreciate you doing this interview on your birthday. I must mention that Susan Botcher put us in touch. Susan works very hard in Florida, serving on various boards, including Equality Florida. She was a city commissioner in Gainesville, Florida, home to the University of Florida. And I've always been very impressed with how hard she works and her command of issues. Were it not for gerrymandering, I suspect that she would be in the Florida legislature or Congress. Yes, and uh, you know, I'll just add to that. She's a bright light uh, here in Alachua County, Florida. And um, one of the first people I met when I came here who's sort of helped me navigate this uh, strange part of the world. <laughs> she knows Florida. So you've had an interesting life, obviously, filled with politics and quite a lot of achievements. I mentioned a few. Can you walk us through some of the highlights? Well, I was uh, after I worked in Capitol Hill for 10 years and sort of ended my stint there with the Carter campaign. But um, I worked on Capitol Hill and uh, at a time when um, there was quite a bit of unity and common purpose in politics. Uh, We it wasn't a time when the Republicans and Democrats really looked for things to um, exaggerate about the other. And uh, so that, that was really wonderful. Uh, I was there when Lyndon Johnson and the Vietnam War uh, came to an end, uh, certainly there uh, when Carter 
uh, graciously uh, lost to Ronald Reagan and ushered in sort of a new era of um, politics where, in, where I think we moved from representative democracy at that point to what I called consumer democracy, meaning that everything was up for sale. And if you weren't focused on selling something, then how could you be caring about the country? Well, the country had a lot more values and virtues than just what was for sale at any given moment. But the, 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 that moment started the real rush with the lobbying world and turning the entire focus of the, the world uh, into economic terms only. Uh, and through that, and over the course of those years since, we've lost our understanding of how the country became great in the first place through ideas. And, through and, and we really see that today. And there is a lot of talk about how in the past, uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle would go have a drink together and got along. And we're hearing that they don't get along and sometimes they can't even talk to each other. Has it gotten better or worse? And how do you see it? Well, we've, we've become such a vanity society, and now politics is sort of a, a professional career that you hone, and part of the honing is how to avoid the public with the truth. And the um, I will say that that fits one party more than the other, and but in both parties, money, as I was began this discussion, has corrupted the process of representative democracy. And the more money you have, obviously, the easier it is for you to uh, get involved in a serious race. And in both parties, the consultants, they're the ones who've created this PAC world that is now worth billions of dollars. And on both sides of the aisle, they're feathering their pockets. And the consultants have sort of this control over who gets to run and who doesn't get to run. Very it seems to me. Yeah, it seems to me that the amount of money, you know, is just off the charts and it keeps increasing. If we just look at how much has already been spent in the nascent California U.S. Senate race, it's off the charts and it's just begun. I think they probably spent more than President Carter spent in his entire primary campaign. Well, you know, he was very he was very tight. He 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 he, he could get more out of two pennies than uh, two cents. Let me just say that he he was such a good guy. He was a true Christian, and um, he probably was the last honest religious person that really believed in the separation of church and state. But when it was time for him to tithe and go to church and talk about his views of Christ, he had no problem doing it. But the guy who really wasn't Christian, <laughs> really probably didn't go to church much, beat him because on a Christian platform. And that's when all hell literally began to break loose. Yeah, I talked about that in my last podcast that Reagan was actually not, he, he was actually pro-choice and he was not socially conservative, but he, he needed the Christian right. And they told him, if you want us, you have to do certain things. And that's a bit of a rabbit hole. But since you brought up President Carter, you know, it seems to be that he got a bad rap. And I'll ask you why. But I just want to mention that there's a, a new book out called The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. And basically, Kyber, the author, basically says that, you know, I won't go into too many details, but he basically says that Carter was ahead of his time on issues and he was a, actually a good president. So what's your take on 
why the Democrats shunned him and why he's still considered uh, by historians to be lower on the list than Reagan in terms of well, uh, let me just say that he was a very confident man, and he also feels like he did finish his presidency through his life's work um, by going and 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 working and building homes and teaching Sunday school and uh, working with his foundation on voting rights and good and clean and fair elections. Um, so my take on Carter is that history is going to treat him very well. Listen, we all know now, what are we, 2023, and it's just come out that the Republicans in the Reagan shop were making deals with the Iran, with Iran, the Ayatollah. And of course, they didn't allow those hot American hostages. Now, just think about this and think about patriotism. Operatives within the Reagan camp were making deals with Iran to not release our American heroes that everyone. So that Carter, so that Carter would lose, and 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 Carter lost because they painted him, and and he wasn't so worried about it. You know, we got a call from the from Jody Powell and Carter and everybody two weeks out. So we knew we not, we're not gonna win. And, um, but he was not gonna change anything he was doing because he was virtuous. I mean, he, he felt that he was doing the right thing by not, by protecting the lives of those hostages and not going in and, and putting them at risk. And lo and behold, we have a whole party cutting a deal to keep them in until this man uh, is not elected again. My take on this is that people of all political persuasion hold Carter in high esteem as a humanitarian now because, you know, most presidents, and I'm not going to list them, but a lot of presidents, recent presidents, made a hell of a lot of money selling books, going in private planes with Hollywood people. And Carter was sort of the opposite. He was out hammering nails for Habitat for Humanity, he lived very humbly. I mean, I I think that at least in that regard, there's a, there's widespread agree agreement. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, he offended the elites of both parties <laughs> and of all, all 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 sectors of society because, just as you said, he had this belief that you live life uh, well, and living life well means compassion and empathy and being fair, um, and that was him. And he, you, he, was a good, he was a good old boy, but before good old boys were talked about. I've heard that when politicians come to D.C., especially new presidents, new U.S. senators, that they really need to kiss the asses of the political elite in order to succeed. And it sounds like you're saying President Carter did not do that. No, I don't think Carter did it at all. And um, it, you know, the media elite, let's go there because I know a lot about that. Um, they didn't like him either because he didn't kiss their ass. And um, so he was, he was, uh, he was sort of portrayed as this hee-haw guy. They never, both he and Roosevelt were extremely intelligent people. And let me tell you, they, when you got around them, they were very much to the point. They knew exactly what to talk about and how long to talk about it. And when you had those few moments with them, you were, it was all business. So let's get right into the present day. The reason why we're here. Um, what led you to the University of Florida? Well, I when I started to hone down my career, we closed the America's Wetland Foundation because it had met its purpose, which was to build national and international awareness about wetland loss and sea level rise due to climate change. 
So we had a 20 year run. We're a very unusual group of people. <laughs> We're odd, I guess. And rather than keep, you know, a monument building, we let the foundation close because there were other groups that were doing the work uh, to actually restore the wetlands. And uh, I was at a point when I was winding my career down. So I wrote a cold call letter to the Dean of the University of Florida Journalism School, which is a very uh, well-respected school. Um, and uh, she wrote me back and she loved my resume and the many different things that I had done both in politics and in the private sector. And um, I, th I think in my social work also, I, I was uh, chair uh, on the board of the LA ACLU and things like that. So let's talk about what did you teach um, and, and when did you start teaching and how long did you teach? Well, it was about three years ago I started and um, I created a, a, a course on global activism. It was an international master's course and social cause communications and uh, social change communications. And so this brought me right into the thicket of issues that were contemporary uh, that would keep students very interested. My courses were full of, uh, of literature, of news articles, of uh, social media posts. And as you can imagine, there was no lack of uh, good content to pull from the last uh, several years. There would, there would be some always, this is University of Florida and Disney in Florida until recently had a, sort of a compact to have students continuing education. So I always have a few Disney students, I had students from Indonesia, Thailand, Japan, Germany, um, Britain, United Kingdom. Um, and we had University of Florida undergraduates that would graduate and come into the... Now there is, there is a, uh, a field of social change, journalism and communications, but global activism, you know, there really isn't. So I had to dig deep and I relied on uh, because of the lack of literature and text uh, available, I relied on a lot of current uh, contemporary articles uh, and news, uh, reliable news sources. And um, in creating the curriculum for this course, uh, relying on reliable news sources was something <laughs> that was key to me teaching the, the journalism course. Um, as you know, or I'm not sure we all know this anymore, but journalism is about telling the facts and the truth about news. And news is something new that is happening that impacts the world. Indeed, news is so important in terms of reliability. I have students use a media bias chart and their news sources need to be in the range of reliability. And I don't care about ideology. The National Review and the Weekly Standard are reliable and acceptable on the right and Jacobin and Democracy Now! are reliable on the left. What I've seen is that in place of news today, there is just a lot of so-called perspective journalism and talky-talky from these talking heads who try to push viewpoints without much data and gin up outrage. So we need more NPR and Christian Science Monitor. Florida had the St. Pete Times for years, which was the gold standard, but due to funding and lack of support for local news, they went out of business. Fake news was something we had to talk about because it was a journalism course. And uh, we had to show examples of fake news. And when you show examples of fake news, obviously you're gonna show some things that are political and controversial. 
Uh, so Black Lives Matter, we had to talk about that. That was a social change communications program. We talked about um, environmental programs worldwide. Um, and, and many of the things that have been put in the divisive marketplace of politics today, I had to discuss. So yeah. moving into my uh, this spring's semester, uh, I was preparing uh, uh, my syllabus and getting new materials together. And I never heard from the University of Florida. So I contacted them and I said, I haven't gotten my, uh, my, my uh, contract and information that you want from me. And I didn't hear from him for a couple of days. And then I got a note from a, a, one of the assistants said, well, you're not teaching. And I said, what do you mean I'm not teaching? <laughs> of course I'm teaching. You made me go through hell getting this course up and ready and I'm ready to teach it again. Was this after you had been teaching it for three years and you weren't put on the schedule? So you just weren't teaching there anymore. So they canceled you. Didn't tell me. And didn't tell you. <laughs> so you said they pulled your course for review. And so I went up the chain of command there and kept asking. And um, at one point wrote that I had a suspicion that with the new edict that came down from Governor DeSantis, that my course, because it had controversial topics, could be controversial, I didn't make them that way, uh, was probably pulled for review. And they quickly and uh, pushed back and denied that, of course, we just had to look at your course. And that was very suspect because my course had just been reviewed for what they call quality management in education, which Florida has. And I got a 99 out of 100 there. My Last semester, I had five student reviews that came in, and uh, they were all perfect, basically. And they were making a case that, well, you, some students may not understand your course. And quite frankly, the way it's happening in Florida now, if somebody says a course makes them uncomfortable, you can lose your course. Right. And so um, just to clarify, the, what was the last semester that you, you taught? Uh, the fall of 2022. Okay, so they didn't put you on for this spring. And that was around the time that this takeover by the governor of Florida had, had happened? Yes. Okay, yeah, well, first they, first they sent out a survey to all the teachers and asking them to fill out a, a, a survey about what you're teaching is anything unusual, blah, 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 blah. Well, I didn't I didn't take the survey. I think that's an invasion of privacy. Most of the instructors did not take the survey um, because we felt that they were trying to begin the weeding out process with that survey. Yeah, I heard a lot about this. Actually, just to let the listeners know, I have been in communication with several faculty at UF and none of them wanted to come on the program out of fear. So I appreciate you being here, but some of them told me, and I don't know if you've heard about this, that their emails were um, uploaded, scoured at the direction of the governor, and keywords were searched like diversity, multiculturalism, anti-racism, etc. Have you heard of this or experienced it? Well, you know, teaching uh, online, I'm not part of the feet-on-the-ground university community. Um, and I, I've just experienced it myself. You know, I and I decided to quit. It was not, you know, it was not, I was not going to get involved in somebody uh, canceling me 
So, so let's let's go back. Where did all this happen? I mean, we, we we talked about Reagan and the beginning, Newt Gingrich's court that he held, and you know began getting into changing the the view of what government is for, right? And uh, far right, <laughs> definitely did that. Got us there quickly. Um, but when I used to give lectures earlier in my career, I would say that the world is divided into fundamentalist and pro-science. Those are the way, those two uh, vessels held what was the, the conflict in the world. And true here, 25 years later, you can call it Taliban or you can call it Na uh, national Christian uh, movements. You can call it whatever you want, but basically it's a group of people who want to look at the rearview mirror because they feel safe there, are people who want to do what made this country great and do progressive activities with science being at the, 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 the root and truth and facts, being at the root of the growth of our country. And there's there's your fight right now. And it's it's here, and it's just the same as these other fights have gone on around the world. You know, if I got into my course and, and, and talked about uh, fundamentalism and pro-science, I mean, that's a snore. I had to talk about woke society and what that really meant and how the word woke and other words and other symbols and other anthems were being captured by a political movement that first captured their own political party. Governor DeSantis and others argue that, you know, progressive organizations, they often call them liberal or Marxist, that these organizations are trying to politicize these issues. And they argue that debating volatile issues such as race and gender norms in universities make people uncomfortable. And they don't think people should be uncomfortable while they're getting an education. And, and you know, they also say that public universities should just focus on the math and science. Uh, and not have diversity coordinators, minority affairs, women's studies, et cetera. So how do you respond to these arguments? Well, I would start by saying public education is what made um, America great. You want to talk about making it great again? Quit killing public education. Because a lot of the root of the problems in this country comes from the funding that has been taken out of education and thrown into different kinds of schools or home learning or, or, or things that they blame public teachers for. And this is a group of people who are underpaid and work hard yes. and have been put in the worst circumstances that you can imagine to try to bring people to a higher educational level so they can be pro-science and be pro-math and the things You're here. they are I, doing. I think public school teachers should make as much as celebrities, but that's just me. Yeah, well, they, they should. And you and I both having taught in college know that that's uh, that that is a real pipe dream. <laughs> <laughs> not going to happen anytime soon. No, it's not. But but it goes back to destroying public education and they determining a group of that represent maybe 20, 30 percent of the public determining that they're going to deconstruct public schools and change the way universities follow their missions. Yeah, they're able to do this through minority rule, the way the Senate is structured, where states with more cows than people have, you know, disproportionate representation versus yeah. California, New York, and gerrymandering. So you talked about the, the big picture, and I just want to mention that education levels are positively correlated to democracy scores, so that these Western European countries that get A-plus democracies on Freedom House, for example, 
uh, they have more uh, higher education levels and they don't have this sort of censorship for the most part. So I think that this is not good for democracy, right? What's your take on that? Terrible for democracy. And you know what it's really terrible for? I mean, there are a couple of examples I can give, but what's happening in Florida is like there's a scab on a wound, um, if I can use a medical metaphor. And under the wound, we don't know if it's going to kill us or septus, or it's going to be a scab that just falls off and reveals a scar. But Florida is scarred for the millions, if not billions of dollars this state has, has done promoting itself. One guy has come along and changed the rules. And the way, the, the playbook that they, they use is he appoints a board that answers to him, like at New College, and they're usually political contributors who have no um, resume to be where they're going, and they go in and disrupt and tear apart really fine institutions. And um, this this is happening in this little area of Alachua County where we live. The governor's trying to appoint a board to tear up and take away the rights of the electric utility from the city council. Okay. And well, so yeah. this is going on and on and on. This is the game, this is the playbook, and this is how it works, where right, places it, have been gerrymandered. Right, but it didn't happen overnight. There has been this vast right-wing apparatus since the 70s right. that has been working on this. They've spent hundreds of millions of dollars. People like Dinesh D'Souza and Chris Rufo, all these people, they've gotten on these sort of conservative institutes like Cato Institute. And when you see a panel on PBS or NPR, or even MSNBC, they make up these panels. And so they have been hammering away at this for a, a long time. And the media is, it is a culprit in this too, by calling some of these outrageous claims a balance to what the other side uh, is doing. And there's no balance if you, if you're lying. I mean, you know, again, the, these these false equivalencies and whataboutism, this is not good journalism. I listened to a podcast called Left, Right, and Center. And the person on the right is always using whataboutism. Like the other day, they talked about the rise of anti-Semitism uh, on the right. And she said, oh, it's just as bad on the left. There's this there was this um, seminar at Berkeley and some professor mentioned something that might be considered. I said, look, this is a false equivalency, right? I mean, this is ridiculous. And they look at us and they they just, as you said, call us these crazy names like socialist and Marxist. My daddy got two purple hearts in World War II. Listen, I know exactly what sacrifice is about. My, my parents were both naval officers and my father was conservative, right? But and I'm not taking sides here. I drive around in rural America. I see, not only do I see Let's Go Brandon, I say, I see bumper stickers that say F-U-C-K, Biden the president. So now if my father, if my parents were alive, they would be horrified. I mean, I think you got thrown in the brig for criticizing the commander in chief. So I think this snarkiness this just deterioration is no matter what side you're on right it's not good for democracy well it's it it is intentionally tearing representative de democracy apart because it does not serve racism it does not serve capitalism out of control 
to where the middle class or people who can't afford to rent homes or buy medicine. It is not designing a democracy. It is undermining a democracy by playing like on the hearts of patriots and dressing up in red, white, and blue and, you know, singing the anthems that we used to cherish, but now look at as sort of tainted. This is not, that, that is horrifying to me as a damn strong patriotic American uh, who doesn't mind uh, being called a progressive. I take that as a badge of honor, who is happy if someone says, what are you for all this multiculturalism? Why, what are you doing about the immigrants? What am I doing about the immigrants? The immigrants are the only ones who wanna work in this country. So I'm, I'm trying well, to figure out know, ways they can come in through the door and work for us. I tell my students that I really don't like to use the left and right labels in my political science classes. And I'll tell you why, because they just they don't mean they don't align with the textbook definition. Like, for example, a lot of this that's happening on the right is not conservative. I mean, it's not, it, it, you know, conservatism you know, it was a conservative Supreme Court that 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 wrote the Roe decision and President Ford and President Nixon, they were all pro-choice just because they didn't want government intrusion, big brother. So that's conservatism, at least according to the textbook definition, right? Well, that's right. But as we talked about at the very beginning, this these professional politicians who have run against the government and then become the government and then spend more on a political campaign to cut taxes um, is what we have. This is what this is what we've been the, the deal we've been dealt. And part of the reason the deal works that way is because I think everyone has um, both parties have not taken care of all of America, meaning rural, uh, what the Democrats love to call the Rust Belt, and I can't imagine if I lived in Pennsylvania being happy if someone called me a Rust Belt person. Um, the, the lack of empathy and understanding and listening to what people in the country are feeling, and that makes it very easy for somebody to come in who's an audit, uh, authoritarian type and create fear, you know, throw drag queens at families and say, you know, your little boy's gonna have his genitalia uh, changed if we don't stop these perverts now. None of that is true, but it's what's being said almost daily, not, not just in the airwaves, but in the, in the chambers of, red, of legislatures. Yeah, it's, I'm gonna talk about the attack on drag queens and trans on my next show, but I, I wanna hone in on something you said. It seems to me, and I don't want to editorialize here, but it just seems empirically that that the Democratic Party arguably is better at, you know, governing on getting things done to help people, whether it's the Affordable Care Act or the economy, helping rural America. But the Republican Party is much better at messaging, at campaigning, at going to rural America. The last Democrat, well, I think Obama did a little bit, but the last Democratic president who really went to rural America was Bill Clinton from Arkansas. And he said, I feel your pain. And I think that the Democrats need to do that uh, because they keep losing. You can't win if you lose, as you said, the whole vast of the country in between the two coasts. So well, you, can much, only, you can only win places that are not gerrymandered. Right. And that is full states and full country. Right. Um, 
we've gotten to the point in most of these uh, Republican-controlled legislatures where the uh, judiciary and the legislatures are now gerrymandering in a minority uh, elected officials, basically. There, um, there are enough. I mean, I just looked at the math. There are enough Democrats in the state of Florida to at least have one of the chambers of the uh, legislature be uh, Democratic controlled, either the House or the Senate. But because of gerrymandering, that just isn't going to happen. That's correct. Anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. So I have another question um, to try to see things from the point of view of DeSantis. So DeSantis talks a lot about woke. And I'm, you know, I don't even know what that means anymore. But anyway, he says Florida is a place where woke goes to die. Do you have any insights into how this term evinced and why it's such a potent soundbite for opponents of multiculturalism, pluralism? You know, taking metaphors is a very, like woke or uh, cancel culture. Um, those are such powerful, simple definitions to turn around and redefine um, and project. And so DeSantis comes in and uh, wants to take away a lot of the freedoms that people have. And he then says he's doing it because people are pushing woke on us, are canceling our businesses, or, and then he cancels Dis Disney. This is a man, and this is a movement, because I'm not going to give him credit for, for being there alone. But this is a playbook to take anything that the opposition says and pull out one word out of context and demonize it. And this I, is what they do well. Yeah, I want to speak to this because I talked about messaging. Um, you know, one could argue, I think a, a pol pol political scientist could argue that a governmental takeover of a private corporation like Disney is basically communism, right? But I'm, I, I think that people might find hyperbolic. But what is interesting to me is that in debate after debate, Republicans call Democrats socialists. They don't fight back. They don't call them, they don't call the Republicans communists. And uh, there really are no socialists in the Congress. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders is a self-described um, democratic socialist, which is those countries in Scandinavia, as I mentioned, have the highest democracy scores. So, um, you know, this, I, I don't know why the Democratic Party doesn't, they're always on the defensive. Why don't they, I, I have noticed that Governor Gavin Newsom and Eric Swalwell, Congressman Eric Swalwell, are starting to get on the offensive. But for the most part, the Democratic politicians have not done that. Can you, can you speak to that? Well, Democrats are a circular firing squad. Um, <laughs> this is a group of people who deal with democracy and dealing with democracy is messy. I think the, the, where the messaging has gone down is that the Democrats have not explained how messy democracy is and brought people into that concept. I agree and concur with your point about it's, it's, it's um, so frustrating to watch a debate like the last governor's debate in Florida when you know DeSantis was talking about we're going to maim children and cut their breasts off uh, and let them you know be to be these mutant people. Um, and then the Democrat just says, well, let me, and then he goes back to his talking points that his consultants have given him. And you know, your hair go, your hair catches on fire because you want to go asking for one example of where that has happened and give and make him give a name. 
Uh, and, but yeah, and, and, and why don't the Democrats go on the offensive and say, look, you're trying to take away parental rights? Because I had heard that Governor DeSantis had threatened parents who take their children uh, to uh, drag queen story time in the library. And the children have to be supervised, by the way. So they take them there. He was going to like threaten to call social services on them, which is just bizarre. I'm, I don't yeah. think that happened, but he did threaten it. He threatened it, and he's also taken away public funding from a theater, and I think in Broward County, I'm not sure where, maybe it was Orlando, uh, that had a drag queen performance. Anybody who knows drag queens know that they're sort of the happiest, nicest people in the world who love children and giving most of their time away for benefits and make very little money, by the way. Uh, but this is like woke, or this is like cancel culture. Pulling that drag queen word words out, that is easy to set on fire and to create fear and running to the hills uh, with those families who occupy all the churches. You in know, just as gender fluidity has been around since the beginning of time, and I, I know a professor who speaks about indigenous cultures and bird ash and all that, drag queens, uh, you know, it's been around since the beginning of time. Remember sure. Klinger and MASH? Oh, I'll, <laughs> They, it's, it's totally it's totally a part of society. I've actually never been to one of these drag queen story times. But I did talk to a friend who has children and she told me that she took and I forget what stage she was in. She took her children. One of her child, one of her, I think her boy was having trouble reading. He had no interest in reading. She took them to a drag queen story time and they loved it. They they got involved in reading because they looked up and they saw like the glitter and the hair and the animation and the drag queen was funny and engaging and the boys started reading. Now, I mean, that's good, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They bring them into court too because the kid's afraid. So the drag queen, you know, lessens the tension and the anxiety. Um you know, these are these are these are nice people that these guys are coming after. Uh, for Christ's sakes, they've been abused their whole life. Well, that's uh, yeah, and, that's, and, and the point. that's what's sad about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, un it's un-American, too. It's not only picking, sad. picking on the vulnerable and it has been deadly. I, I read this morning in a newspaper that three organizations, including Equality Florida, which I think you're involved in, have issued travel warnings for Florida. I've also heard firsthand that families are leaving Florida because they have transgender children. They are. I'm leaving Florida. I mean, I, <laughs> I came here. No, I, I know it's not funny, but I... <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm moving. I've got my house up for sale and I'm getting out of here because I'll tell you what, unless people take this stuff seriously, it's going to be on your front door. You're going to be something that's not in the minority's view of how the world should be at some point. Indeed, when minority rights are attacked one never knows when they will be in the minority and on the receiving end of this okay so let's get back to how consultants fit into all of this the group of in the beltway washington dc consultants have a stranglehold on both parties but uh, i think the only solution in our country is going to be to have more parties i think we're going to reach a low point with what's going on with the divisions that we see now and um, I think you're going to see it with the primaries being owned by Democrats and Republicans. But in Florida, the largest registration numbers are independent. 
And those people at some point are going to be looking for a place to land uh, as the Democrat and Republican parties become less viable, quite frankly, for them. Proportional representation that we see in places like the Netherlands and other Western European countries is, is associated with higher democracy scores, higher participation. And because you don't have the first past the post winner take all, you have, um, you know, 10 parties can uh, have representation in the Knesset or the parliament, whatever it is. And so that is associated with, with better outcomes. However, yeah. however, people don't want the, na the Nader spoiler, the, the Republicans are convinced that Ross Perot, uh, you know, Clinton won with a plurality, like 30 something percent. And the, the, and the thought is that uh, Perot took away from uh, the Republicans. So basically, there's no incentive for the consultants and the parties to, um, you know, they, they want to keep the status quo. There's no incentive for the power brokers and the consultants. So and on the right, you know, there's no incentive for the gun lobby and the left, there's no incentive for the labor unions. But strong, bright, young minds creating new parties, it's going to happen unless we fall to authoritarianism, which is totally possible. And we have examples of it happening throughout history. So who are some politicians that you knew who that you truly admired? Uh, well, Jimmy Carter, we talked about. I admired him. I didn't find him the friendliest person in the world because he was always, <laughs> he was always very focused on what he wanted to do. He and Rosalind both. Um, I think the, the uh, admired, um, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of women who I've admired that have gone through the challenges, you know, Nancy Pelosi, I know personally, and I, I think she really came to be speaker during a very difficult time. Um, really, really, really tough. Uh, so um, I, I, that, I admired her. Um, I definitely admire the group that was on the panel, the January 6th panel. And people would say, oh yeah, of course he's gonna admire them. They're going after Trump. No, I thought that they were very thoughtful. I thought that that was so worthwhile watching. Um, and I think like there are newcomers like the governor of Kentucky. I, I find him very interesting, you know, in a tough state, but um, he's a Democrat and I think he's, he's doing a good job. Like, what do you think of the governor of Michigan? I like her. I think she's, <laughs> they were going to assassinate her. So God knows she's tough. So did we cover everything uh, about the University of Florida? Do you have anything else to say about what's happening at the University of Florida, New College? It, didn't something just happen at FIU? Yeah. Well, the Florida University, public universities are under siege right now. And the faculties are intimidated. You know, they've, they're afraid of losing their lower paid jobs because it's all they have. And they've worked their ton, worked tons of hours to make quality education, make the University of Florida number five in the US News and World Report for what that's worth. But that's not gonna last now. And um, I think that you're gonna see as possible, these people leave. I think you're gonna see people like me resign rather than be put to some test after working in a career for 35 years, a successful one, and then be challenged by some body for political purposes to teach kids what I learned. 
Um, that's 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 coming. Florida has got some real problems. It will either turn out that the scab falls off and 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 uh, under it heals, or DeSantis continues to disrupt and create chaos till he gets fifty one percent of the vote. And had you still be teaching? Do you think that it would just be a matter of time before you'd leave because of the situation? I think that I would have felt the the walls closing in on me because I was saying the words that they said have to be scrubbed from uh, any of the courseworks. And these really good faculty top in their field now, I've heard anecdotally um, and in the press that they're going to try to find jobs outside of Florida and then the 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 best and brightest won't be coming into Florida. And then, you know, they're going to drop from top five pretty quickly, right? Well, whatever that top five means by U.S. Right. But, but they have but, worked hard. They have worked hard through the years to be part of this inclusiveness is what you have to do to attract the best and brightest and be a preeminent university. So they had, they had a top uh, policy on diversity and inclusion. Uh, and that office has been disbanded. So uh, it's gone. Well, I hate to end on a sad note. What do you do? Want, we, what are you... <laughs> do you have anything cheery to say? <laughs> well, I mean, you, know, so this, me... you sound like you sound like my friends at a dinner party who go, "We're not inviting you again." <laughs> uh, we are invi- no, I, we are inviting you again because I want you to come back when you're in California. But so, where in California are you thinking to move to? I'm going to land in Palm Springs. Uh, a lot oh, of wow. my contemporaries, when I was in LA for 20 years, started my company there. We end, they ended up in Palm Springs, and I had a little place there uh, at one point. So I know the, I know the turf. Uh, I went there. I went there once when they had that extreme heat wave, and there were there was fires, and the ashes were falling down. Oh, but I still God. liked it. And I like the little misters, um, you know, that keeping your hair dry, wet. Yeah, and they do have electricity and internet and Zoom, so we can have you. They do. We can we can do that. And if you're if you're out there and not in the summer months, I would hope uh, you can come by and do it live. I need to go in the winter uh, sometime, but I can't thank you enough for this exclusive interview with a legend. (laughs) Legends are something you got to be careful with them. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Val, and have a good day. Okay, Bill. Y'all have a great one, too. Bye-bye. As always, I welcome your feedback. Please leave a comment, and please follow the show on Twitter, PoliticsCons, at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others. (laughs) 